are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos, and we're picking up uh, once again with Hypothesis 40, and we are on page 348 tonight with letter G at the bottom of the page from St. Maximus the, Con- Maximus the Confessor, uh, one of the great writers of the early church, and uh, we've been following along as the fathers have been speaking to us about stability in this spiritual life. Uh, both as it's rooted in ourselves, in terms of seeing the movements of the mind and the heart that uh, creates a kind of dissatisfaction with the particular path that we've chosen. And so for the monk, for example, one who has embraced the uh, cenobitic life, the life of community, uh, begins to have these uh, longings for a life of greater solitude, but uh, has to put those to uh, the test, because often they will emerge from uh, the desire simply to remove oneself from the frustrations of the common life of dealing with other persons, personalities, and irritations, and uh, not really being called to that life by God so much as being urged uh, along, along that path by the demons or simply by their own inclination. And uh, so it is, is once one has made the choice to embrace a certain path and has lived it, uh, should put it to the test, uh, always seeking out spiritual counsel and not uh, being impulsive in uh, making a change. Not that it's not possible, uh, but it's important really to be careful in that regard. Uh, As we move along in this hypothesis, the focus shifts a little bit to talking about how important it is also for us to take our responsibility for uh, others' stability in their vocation, that the way that we treat them, the way that we engage them on a day-to-day basis, the love, the tenderness, the support that we show them is essential. There's no um, uh, kind of radical individuality in the religious life or as Christians, that we are responsible for one another's spiritual well-being. And so if we live in common, with another person, we want to do all in our power to support them in the spiritual life, uh, but also to treat them again with love and respect and compassion so that we do not push them in the direction of a particular temptation, uh, push them away from their commitment to God. And we talked a little bit about this the last time. I'm not sure if it was in Climacus or in this group, uh, but I'm glad we did because Often we lose sight of the importance of that, that uh, we can be self-focused in the spiritual life and neglect our responsibility to the other. And so again, we're picking up with St. Maximus on 348. A foolish man led astray by the passions at times becomes wholly unsettled since he is moved by anger and without thinking hastens to leave his brothers. But in time, he is warmed by his desire for them, and feeling regret for leaving, runs back to their company. The intelligent man does does the exact opposite in both instances. In the case of anger, he cuts off the causes of his disturbance and frees himself from feeling grief towards his brothers, while whenever he is overtaken by the desire for senseless wrath or aimless encounters, he controls himself. So the wise man, right from the beginning, is going to be attentive to what's going on within. And in general, this is wise counsel. I think there are so many things in our day-to-day life 
the trials, the difficulties, especially in our relationships with others, that agitate the heart. And uh, they might be very good reasons that give rise to that agitation, uh, but it also can blind us if they give rise to feelings of wrath or hatred. And so we, as soon as we see this begin to emerge within us, we want to seek that stillness that is at the heart of the spiritual life in order that ag that agitation might dissipate, dissipate uh, so that we can make a decision with a kind of clarity uh, that we aren't driven only by the emotions, but our reason comes into play, but most of all, our, our faith and the life of prayer. And, uh, and so we have to uh, not only take the, the thoughts and the feelings captive, but strive to move uh, to that place of internal peace and stillness. And uh, this is why we want to try to maintain it throughout the course of our day, that we uh, maintain this kind of remembrance of God, stillness of heart, where we aren't letting our thoughts run where they want to, but try to keep our focus upon God so that when we are presented with things that are disturbing, we're able to keep our focus upon God, but also upon the dignity of the other. Number two. At the time of temptations, do not leave your monastery, but endure with courage the waves of thought, and especially those of grief and boredom. Protested in this way, by providence through afflictions, you will have sure hope in God. But if you leave, you will be found worthless, unmanly, and unstable. The man who at the time of trial does not display forbearance at the events that befall him, has not yet acquired perfect love, nor even a profound knowledge of divine providence, but cuts himself off from the love of his spiritual brothers. The purpose of divine providence is to reunite through right faith and spiritual love, those who have become separated by evil in various ways. This is precisely why the savior suffered in order to gather together into one, the children of God, that had been scattered abroad by sin, St. John 11.52. And so, you know, as the waves of temptation roll upon us, he's telling us that we want to be schooled well in the, the ways of divine providence, that when we are afflicted in any kind of way, that we would realize that this is often God's way of deepening our hope in his promises, as well as deepening our faith. So again, we don't allow ourselves to be quickly uh, pulled away from that path. And the way that we are pulled away from it begins internally by what's going on in our heart and what we do with that. And if we are able to maintain the sense of hope, uh, but also this clear sense of uh, what the Savior came to bring about, which is to unite us, reunite us with God, but also with each other. Through, through his grace. Uh, it's interesting, in the Eastern Rite, we will celebrate something called a synaxis. It's a feast day. Uh, it follows a feast day, the central feast days within the life of the church, where you celebrate then the feast of the saint that figures primary, uh, as a, is a primary figure in that event in salvation history. Uh, so often, if there is uh, an event that involves, for example, John the Baptist, the next day will be a feast of St. John, or if it involves one of the apostles, the next feast day will be a feast of, say, St. Andrew or St. Peter. And uh, on Sunday, we celebrated the feast of Pentecost. And so today was uh, a, a holy day, a feast day for us, the, the Monday of Pentecost. Uh, but uh, as a synaxis, our focus would be on the Holy Trinity. And the Holy Trinity as a model then of the love that we are called to, that the Father and the Son are uh, struck together in this bond of love that is eternal and that is radically personal. And the gospel that we are given outlines for us uh, how we are then to look at others in love and treat them, but the lengths that we are to go to protect them 
And so it was from Matthew's gospel, Matthew 11. And he begins by talking about the care for the innocent. Uh, so children in particular, that their angels uh, stand constantly before the judgment seat of God and intercede on their behalf. Uh, we are then told about uh, the shepherd looking, uh, seeking out the one lost sheep, that our desire for the salvation of others should drive us then to be attentive to the needs of someone who might be struggling in their faith uh, or who has no faith whatsoever. And that we would desire to engage them with love uh, in order to strengthen them uh, in one way or another. Uh, the, then the third part was fraternal correction. If somebody falls into error, you are to go to them personally with gentleness, talk to them. And if that fails, to bring another, again, to talk to them. And then to bring the whole church to play in charity, try to draw a person away from the error that they had fallen to, back into this, this fullness of, of unity. And uh, then finally, uh, the gospel speaks of where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst, that we are bound in this union of love through our prayer, that we're even the, the anchorite is not to see himself as praying in, just for himself or individually. He sees himself as part of the body of Christ and that his prayer is something that strengthens and elevates it as a whole. And so he's not involved in a private enterprise. And so the whole focus of today's feast is very much what is being talked about here today, that we are bound by this eternal love that then requires that we uh, seek to remain in community with others, but also then help others to remain in communion with us. And so if we've sinned against them, that we would apologize, we would uh, seek forgiveness, or uh, if they, again, are falling away for one reason or another, or if we tr treated them poorly, again, to treat them with tenderness and try to draw, draw them back. And uh, again, we talked a little bit about this the last time, that we can see uh, that we are often at one another's throats, even as Christian men and women. And over uh, philosophical or theological ideas or about liturgy, but often there is this lack of radical charity that we hear about in this hypothesis uh, that lays upon us the responsibility to love as God loves, that we are now part of the life of the Holy Trinity. And the way that we live our life is to be a reflection of that reality. And so we can never, we can't judge our own vocation or our relationships with others purely in light of our own experience or private judgment any longer. It's not that those things don't come into play, but what trumps it all is divine love and what we come to see through uh, what we've talked about before, the eye, the heart, purified, that we are able to perceive divine things with the kind of clarity unimpeded by our, our own passions. Uh, it was interesting this weekend, we had a retreat on this prayer to the Holy Spirit of Heavenly King. And at one point they talk about the eye of the heart and uh, as, our, as providing us the, the means to gaze upon God face to face while in this world that provided is purified, that there is no impediment to seeing the fullness of God's love. But they, the author quoted Meister Eckhart, who said, it is also the eye through which God sees us, views us. So we, God gives us the faculty through which we see each other. It's a, almost a common lens, if you will, the lens of love and uh, a lens that has been purified by the Holy Spirit through which we gaze at God and God gazes at us and that we are to gaze at each other. And if we could simply take hold of that, even in the smallest 
way, I think it would transfigure the way that we live our day-to-day -day life and how we, again, deal with those troublesome interactions that emerge or the frustrations that even come out of our memory sometimes and stir things within us uh, that really agitate the heart. If we can remember what we've become in Christ and remember what is far more powerful within us, which is the spirit of love, then even the wounds that we bear become the means through which we, we gaze upon others and gaze upon the love of God. And we quoted St. Augustine, if you remember last time, saying, in my greatest and deepest wound, I saw your glory and I was dazzled by it. That uh, it's precisely in these things, and this is why Maximus is trying to tell us here, to learn the ways of divine providence, that we will often come to see God's love in the difficulties, the trials, the afflictions of day-to-day -day life. So don't quickly run away from them or push people away. Okay. Number three, he who does not endure or bear afflictions or accept sorrows or put up with difficulties assuredly strays far from divine love and the providence of God. For love makes a man long-suffering and good. If one is faint-hearted in the face of the troubles that befall him, and for this reason bears malice towards those who have grieved him, ceasing to love them and being estranged from them, how will he not fall away from the purpose of divine providence? So if we quickly move away, from those who God has put into our midst. And uh, this is where our sanctity is shaped and formed through these encounters. If we are unable to endure that, then how is it that we are able to trust God's providence in greater things in our life? When we experience those greater trials and difficulties that come from living in a fallen world, illness or loss of job, experience of failure, in some form or another, when we're when our uh, faith is really put to the test, the, our ability to deal with these circumstances described in these past paragraphs prepares us then uh, for the greater trials to come. Any thoughts so far? Rory writes: Is divine providence the stillness among the passions of life? Uh, most often, divine. Providence is, is described as God's guiding and directing us through the action of his spirit and grace within our life and through the circumstances of our day-to-day -day life. And this is why stillness is important and the purity of heart that that is rooted in, that we are able then to see God present. Uh, in the circumstances of our day-to-day -day life, wh whether they are good and joyful or difficult and trying, that we're able to discern what God is doing there and to hold fast to the path that he's drawing and so on. And I think in our own day, we've often substituted uh, personal preference, intuition, private judgment, rather than see seeking the life of virtue, the stillness that you speak of here, purity of heart, as the true means to which we are able to see what God desires from us. And part of this has to do with our formation, our culture. You know, the emphasis, since there is a movement away from a religiosity, and even in religion, uh, a movement away from this kind of deep formation, uh, that the emphasis is put on private judgment and reason. And uh, it's not as though these things do not help us, but often we can be deceived through them. And we're called to something far more. Okay, number four. Has a brother been the occasion of trial for you? And has your distress at this led you to hatred for him? Do not be overcome by hatred, but overcome hatred by love. This is how you will overcome hatred, by praying sincerely to God for him and accepting his apology, or by mollifying him yourself through this apology. 
recognizing yourself responsible for the trial, enduring patiently until the cloud has passed. He is long-suffering who awaits the end of a trial with composure and waits upon the glory of his perseverance. And so, you know, we, we are going to get to discussing those times where uh, perhaps things take a step further than this, but I think in our day-to-day -day encounters and our day-to-day -day struggles with others, uh, the counsel here uh, is well-suited to our experience, that, that we are generous in our response to another person's request for forgiveness, and that we are quick ourselves and humble and seeking that forgiveness from another whenever we've used a harsh word or whenever we've been insulting or neglectful or lacked generosity. Uh, that uh, in every way, we wait till, and I, I like the phrasing here, we endure patiently until the cloud has passed and wait until the end of the trial with composure and upon the glory of, of this perseverance until we see the glory of God manifest uh, as a fruit of our perseverance, that the truth will become evident to us uh, of what was really driving us and what was becoming a wedge between ourselves and the other, that our perseverance will bear fruit, we will see the path forward, and we will be able to be reconciled with the other. So in our day-to-day -day life, I think the, the fathers had a very clear and simple view of things, that gentleness and tenderness, uh, but also humility in seeking forgiveness and, uh, and offering. Any other thoughts? A long-suffering man is very wise, for in all that happens to him, he looks to that recompense which he awaits from God, and it is for this reason that he endures sorrows. The goal of our struggle in Christ is eternal life, as the divine apostle says, and this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Be sure not to think a spiritual or a virtuous brother of days past, base and wicked, base and wicked, because of some hatred that may have been engendered in you by the influence of the evil one. But with the power of love, which is always long-suffering, take account of the kindness that he displayed yesterday, so as to cast today's hatred out of your soul. So not an easy thing to do when we find ourselves angry at a person or when they've treated us poorly to try to call to mind at that point the ways that they've treated us uh, with, with generosity or they supported us in our life in one way or another. Uh, we can always get into that attitude. Well, what have you done for me lately? Even if a person has been the most generous to us throughout the course of our life. Uh, when we get angry with somebody, all of a sudden we can become blind to a whole history of goodness and generosity and, and love on their parts. And so again, the, the counsel here is, is very good. Slow things down. If we were to put it simply for ourselves, to slow what, down what is going on within the mind and the heart, to give yourself enough time to see what is going on there, and to, to be able to engage the other person when your heart is less heated and when you're less angry or when you're less wounded by what the, the person has done or, when, or until you can recognize what you've done and bring yourself to seek the, the other person's forgiveness. At times it can take a, a while and a great deal of prayer to bring us to that, that point, especially asking forgiveness. That's a very difficult thing to do. It can be a humbling thing to acknowledge that what we did was hurtful or that we weren't generous and to ask another person's forgiveness. And often being able to do that can diffuse things very quickly. 
you know, this kind of humility before the other. And we, we can dig in our heels at times, even when we know we're wrong. Uh, and because our frustration has grown so great with another that even when in the back of our mind or our, in our conscience, we, we know we took things too far or what we said was too biting or sharp, we'll dig in our heels and not uh, simply acknowledge what we said. And so again, slowing things down uh, turning to prayer in particular and allowing that stillness to reemerge can help us do that. Uh, this is so important on many different levels of our life to suspend judgment uh, in the way that we view others and the way that we view circumstances is one of the best things we can do. And certainly, you know, the great spiritual masters teach us this, but in psychoanalysis, I learned this as, as well, that there are off, things are often multi-determined, that there are many things that bring about certain circumstances or create the perception on the part of another person or within our own hearts. And so to suspend judgment, even when something seems perfectly clear to us and to our own judgment, Realizing that in our poverty, we don't see all ends. We don't see things as God sees them. So even when there's something that seems perfectly clear to us, or it's obvious to us that somebody has done something so wounding to us or to another, or that they've committed a sin that is very clear in our eyes, to be able to suspend judgment and say no, and to wait, to, to pray for the other, to pray for ourselves and for light and allow the greater truth to emerge. And again, we're getting all twisted up, I think, in our culture because we, the truth is manipulated and easily manipulated in our own day. And with the advent of AI, we're hearing, you know, that things can really take on the appearance of somebody saying or doing something because of what AI can produce. Mimic, mimicking the language and thought patterns and even the image of others. And so it's going to become even more important, I think, on some level for us to suspend judgment and allow the greater truth to emerge. Any other thoughts? Louise writes, Father, what would you say about people who sue here and there, sue here, I'm sorry, sue here and there to deal with their anger? Uh, I think we live in a culture that moves very quickly to litigation, to protecting one's rights. And I think we've come to identify, you know, our personal wealth, our personal value and identity as caught up with those rights and that we will somehow uh, have greater freedom too if we demand them and that we pursue this kind of justice for ourselves uh, from others or, uh, and what, what they've done or failed to do for us. And we aren't often driven by this kind of long suffering attitude towards others, uh, this self-emptying love of Christ, what we see in him Christ is often not the standard that we use in uh, judging uh, others or what to do in certain circumstances. I think I mentioned when I was uh, going to do a retreat for the deacons uh, about a month ago. I don't know if I told my mom this, so sorry, mom, you're hearing this for the first, first time. But I got to a light and uh, I was making my way out to Ligonier, which I'd been to hundreds of times, but from Duquesne, uh, the GPS was taking me in a different direction that I hadn't gone before. And so I got to a light and we were stopped at the light and I looked down at the GPS and I saw movement thinking that the cars had started moving ahead and I took my foot off the brake. And when, it was a split second. And when I picked, lifted up my eyes, the car ahead of me was stopped and I rammed into the back of them. And I hit my brakes really hard and I must've only been going like a few miles an hour at the most. Uh, but you know how, what happens, adrenaline begins to pump. And uh, whenever something like that happens, it, 
the, it is magnified in your own eyes because it feels like, oh my gosh, I just smashed into the back of another. And the person who gets hit has that feeling too. You know, somebody, you know, he just rammed into me. And uh, the, the woman was with her daughter and she got out of the car. And the first thing that she yelled was, I'm calling the state police. And she said, you've been, you've been uh, tailing me or something along those lines for a while now. <laughs> and I hadn't. We were stopped at a light, in fact. And I said, okay. I said, that's all right. I said, you know, I'm at fault here. It was, it was my fault, you know. And so let's pull over into this lot. And thank goodness she had her daughter with her. And she was about my age. And she had her daughter in the car. And the daughter helped us you know take down information there was no damage to the car nobody was hurt and uh she called the police and the police said if the if the cars still work and nobody is injured then you deal with it through your insurance companies and by the time it was over she said you know my husband works with cars and i'll have him look it over and i don't see any damage and I called my insurance company and they said, you know, if there's no damage, you, you can file a report to have a record, but not to worry about it. We both had the same insurance company, it, it turned out to be. And uh, so I never heard from them again uh, because there was no damage. But the, what I'm getting at here is that that adrenaline uh, gets going. And when something like this happens that's dramatic, uh, you go into this fight or flight kind of uh, response. And she got out of the car and she was ready to fight, you know, and understandably so. And uh, because she was hit from behind. And, uh, but once things calmed down enough, you know, we were able to suspend judgment for a short period of time. Her daughter, thank goodness, was like a, in this little triangle with us in a calming figure and uh, was able then, you know, as I said, to take all the information down and to calm the situation. And, uh, but it, you could see how a situation like that could develop into something far more. You know, and, you know people have been known to get into fights and road rage and even shoot at each other over, over such things. And, uh, and so I bring this up as sort of an image of what's being talked about here to slow, slow things down. Uh, don't let even what is obvious be to you uh, to be the only thing that determines your judgment and what you do. And getting back to your question here, uh, to deal, you know, to, to sue, to use litigation to deal with anger that, uh, you know, often our first thought in jumping out of a car, again, you know, is that I'm going to, uh, you know, call the police, get a record of this, prepare myself to sue, to protect my rights, and, uh, and things such as that, before anything is done, before anything is seen, and before it's unpacked to see if there's any need to do so. And, uh, and without trying to diffuse things or to de-escalate uh, a situation to be able to see things clearly. And again, I think everything in our culture moves us towards protecting our rights or expecting people to try to take advantage of us. And you know, when we hear from Christ that we are called to uh, this kind of vulnerability in our love, that divine love by nature is vulnerable. And we see it ever so perfectly upon the cross, arms outstretched, hanging naked before the eyes of the world and receiving all that the world thrust upon him. And Christ telling us that you, you'll be hated by all because of, you know, of my name, because of your association with me. And so we're being called to this radically vulnerable kind of love in a world that is quick to litigation. And so it tells us, you know, as Christians, life can be pretty challenging, that we might have to deal with people that are going to come at us in a hyper-aggressive way. And I think when we see everything that's going on in our culture, we're becoming more and more guarded 
you know, having to get cameras to watch our homes, but now even having to sort of grow eyes in the back of your head because you don't know if you're going to be, you know, knocked out in the street for whatever you happen to be carrying at the time or just out of somebody's blind rage. And it can put us into these, into this frame of mind that makes us uh, interpret every interaction uh, from the standpoint of suspicion that everyone is a potential enemy or someone who can potentially hurt us or wound us rather than approaching the other with this hermeneutic of generosity that we interpret and look at them with the eyes of love and uh, generosity as we approach them as, as human beings. And again, you know, it's becoming more and more difficult. That So even prior to suing or litigation, I think our, we're, we're often in this very prote protective uh, kind of position in regards to the other and wanting to guard and protect our rights. John writes, this reminds me of the Roman judges who flew off the handle into a rage immediately upon hearing the testimony of the Christians they were sentencing. Uh, flying off the handle, you mean in anger and towards them, right. And uh, I think, you know, I think, you know, certainly, you know, Christians approach to things, you know, when they're demanded to give over things. Uh, there's a story, I think it was a deacon, the deacon Lawrence who presents, he's demanded to present all the, you know, the riches of the church and he brings with him the poor uh, and, and presents them uh, to the, the, you know, one of the Roman judges and, you know, he's uh, quickly put to death uh, for doing so rather than handing over the riches of the church, you know, and at that point they, they had none. Uh, but so the, the, again, the way that we view the world and even the way that we view our rights, we have to be very, uh, we have to be very cautious. You know, have we put on the mind of Christ in such a way that it slows us down and allows us to look at every set of circumstances uh, through the, the love of the cross. And uh, we very quickly, again, if our anger is stirred, can move to draw that line in the sand. And at that point, we, we cease to be Christian. And I think this is what you know, the author is saying. We can cast off, uh, do not cast off brotherly love quickly or lightly, we are told. And is that, I think that's the next paragraph. Oh no, I'm sorry that that's the next page, I'm sorry. So we can cast it off lightly. And so we have to be guarded in this regard. Let me move on to paragraph six. No, did we do, I'm sorry, I'm, I lost my place. Can anybody help me out with what number we're on? Six, okay. Do not disparage today as wicked and vile the one whom yesterday you praised as good and extolled as virtuous. When your love for him is transformed into hatred, using your brother's censure of you as a justification for the evil hatred in you. On the contrary, you should persist in the same praises for him, even if your soul is overcome by anguish, and you will thus easily return to the same saving love. Do not adulterate the praise due to your brother in conversations with other brothers on account of the sorrow that is hidden in your soul, mixing reproach into your words without realizing it. But use pure praise in your encounters and pray sincerely for him as though you were praying for him yourself, and thereby you will receive speedy deliverance from the destructive hatred. So, you know, not to let go of our praise of the other simply being stirred by by that anger and uh and not to let our conversations with others drift there easily either 
uh, stirred by anger, we could speak about our best of friends, perhaps in a cutting way before others, detraction. You know, they might have done something uh, that it was truly hurtful, but tearing them down in the image of others. And so we, we lose that love, loving disposition. He goes on to say, and even if the brother, tempted by the devil, persist in maligning you, do not in the least retreat from a loving disposition, but repel the demon who vexes your mind. You will not depart from this love if you, if you praise when you are maligned and think favorably about him who seeks to harm you. This is the path indicated by the philosophy of Christ, and he who does not follow it does not abide with Christ. And so, again, asking ourselves quite simply, you know, you know, to, I don't want to be superficial about this, but, you know, what would Jesus do? We, we hear often said in, in our day, and there is a kind of truth to that, you know, how would Christ respond to this set of circumstances? And I think our first argument to ourselves is, well, I'm not Christ, or I'm not a saint. But in reality, we are. We bear this, the spirit of Christ within us. We, and we bear divine love within us. And in many ways, it's up to us to determine to hold on to that uh, in our relations with others, or if we are quick to let go of it uh, because we are moved to anger. Do not goad your brother with insinuations, lest you receive the same treatment from him, in which case the disposition of love will be lost on both sides. So here, the, there's a little bit of a switch, a turn, that in our response to others, we are not goading them, uh, that we can tempt people to anger, uh, we can taunt them, and uh, drive them to anger against us by the way that we treat them. And in that sense, we've become at least partly responsible uh, for how, how it is then that they respond to what we are doing. If we lack, again, this kind of tenderness and generosity towards others. If you think that he has grieved you in some way, Go and confront him with the boldness that love inspires and reprove him so that you may eradicate the cause of your grief and that the two of you may be freed from upset and sorrow of soul. Do not say, I do not hate my brother, only with your lips when indeed you are unwilling even to hear his name. Listen to what Moses says, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor, and thou shalt not bear sin on his account. When you have been reconciled and are at peace, do not call to mind the words of your brother which you once grieved you, whether these distressing words were uttered in person or you were subsequently informed of them by someone else, lest you be overcome by the thought of remembering wrongs and resume destructive hatred against your brother. And so the, the movements of the heart can be very subtle and very quick here, again, stirred by emotion that Climacus uh, talks about a, a shift in the mind taking place that is almost instantaneous, uh, that only those with the purest of heart can see this kind of movement. Uh, it's almost like a flash of lightning that can then stir a passion within us. And especially with anger, that can happen. A person can turn on a dime. One moment you can be la laughing and jesting with them, and the next moment uh, things can turn bitter if a button is pushed either in oneself or you push a button in another. And, uh, and so these are the kind of things that we as Christian men and women are attentive to uh, because there can be a kind of delight uh, believe it or not, that we take in stirring other people up and getting their emotions going. And, uh, and this 
you know, is morbid in the sense that it can become something that is deadly to a relationship. It can destroy it because we are taking the relationship for granted and the familiarity that we have with the other for granted, that there is a kind of vulnerability that we have with each other that we or with those that we know well, details about them or what they are sensitive to. And those are, are precious things that are entrusted to us. If somebody's vulnerable before us and they've, they've let us into their life and let us see their vulnerabilities, if we take advantage of that to goad them and uh, to belittle them or to make them feel small, then uh, there can be a profound lack of charity in that. Uh, that is reprehensible in the eyes of God. That we, we are taking what is precious and we are dashing it against the rocks. And in some ways, it's as bad as, you know, breaking internal forum, you know, the confidence of another or even breaking the seal of the confessional. I know that sounds strong, but I think when something that precious is given to us in a relationship, that only, we might only know about the other, that the, and that's entrusted to us in love, then we are responsible for protecting it, protecting the, their emotional well-being, but also protecting that confidence. And we, we often will play fast and easy with that. Number eight. When the rational soul nurtures hatred against a human being, it is not possible for it to be at peace with God, who gave commandments like this one. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. If someone is unwilling to be reconciled and at peace with you, guard yourself against hatred by sincerely praying for him and not saying a bad word against him to anyone. Uh, so we, we lose a lot. You know, certainly, you know, this speaks of it in uh, a moral frame and in the way that we are not fulfilling the commandments of God to forgive others. But there, there's something about when we give ourselves over to anger, we lose something precious, which is an internal stillness. Uh, so when we become agitated, we lose that capacity to see that which is good, to seek God. So we cut ourselves off to him, not purely off from him, not purely in a moral way is what I'm getting at. But we cut ourselves off from him uh, relationally when we move away from love. If God is love, then if we look at a person with hatred, we lose that stillness within us, and we lose that capacity to see God, as well as to see the goodness in the other at the same time. And I think sometimes we make uh, the teachings of the gospel and of Christianity as a whole weaker by only focusing upon the moral or legal aspects of our, our actions and lose sight of the relational, that uh, it's we're moving away from love that's still something precious from us when we get angry. It's stealing our peace. And that is often hard won, that only comes through prayer and developing that, that trust in, in God and his grace and his providence in our, in our life. So we want to protect it. So all of what we're reading here isn't to be read simply in a moralistic way. What we're trying to protect is this gift that God has given to us of the, of the spirit, the spirit of peace. And so if we're giving ourselves over to anger towards another, we're, we're not only breaking down that relationship, but we're breaking down what, this relationship with God and a participation in a heavenly peace, a peace that this world cannot provide us. John writes, oh no, I'm sorry, that was the previous comment. Number nine, the peace of the holy angels, which the Christian ought to have, is founded on the two dispositions, these two dispositions, love for God and love for one's neighbor. In such a way did all the saints of every age acquire peace in their souls. The Savior expressed this point most beautifully when he said, 
On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Do not think that the words which bring grief to you and engender hatred in your soul, even if they appear to be true, proceed from friends who are well disposed toward you. On the contrary, you should reject these words as venomous and deadly serpents, so that you may thereby both stop your friends from aligning you and deliver your soul from every evil. Search your conscience in detail to see whether it is because you of you that your brother has not been reconciled and do not attempt to deceive it, or for it knows your secrets well. For this reason, it will accuse you at the hour of departure of your soul and will become an impediment for you at the time of prayer. So two things there that we are to see the, the things, the words that bring us to grief as things that uh, are not necessarily from our friends, but are provoked by the demons themselves. That there is a kind of hatred that we should have for those venomous words and things that people do uh, and allow it to be directed there, but to recognize also the poverty that exists there, that a person has been tempted perhaps to malign us or treat us poorly or even abuse us. And uh, this, there may be division that exists between us and that even might remain between us, but acknowledging the fact that those venomous words or that malignant behavior has its origin, not in the person, but in the demon that brought them to this temptation. Or we have to sometimes recognize uh, that it comes from something that we've instigated and that we have to listen to our conscience uh, and for its rebuke. If we, again, goaded a person or drove them to anger in some form or another. So all these little subtleties of this interior work, working of the mind and heart, uh, I think are very important for us. That again, it leads us to be more introspective and to, I think to foster that stillness, not just for peace of mind and peace in a, a world that's filled with chaos. You know, we're called to something more than that. We're called to the peace of Christ, the peace of the kingdom uh, that then helps uh, bring that peace to others. Uh, if you remember, we quoted St. Seraphim of Seraph, who said, if you know the peace of Christ within your heart, you will convert thousands, you will save thousands. And so to lose this peace or to give it away so quickly uh, is, is jeopardizing our, ourselves and others, but we're also giving way to the action of the evil one within the world and within our communities or our relationships. And so if we are able to be clear of the spiritual battle that is being waged around us, within us and in other people's lives, that it can again help us to suspend judgment long enough to discern what is going on, but also how the providence of God can work in that set of circumstances and might be working. Number 10, do not cast off brotherly love lightly, for there remains no other way of salvation for human beings. Observe yourself with care and see uh, if the evil which separates you from your brother has its cause, not in him, but in you, and make haste to be reconciled with him, lest you transgress the commandment of love. Do not despise the commandment of love because... Through it, you will become a son of God, whereas when you transgress it, you will become a son of Gehenna. So, you know, there is enormous worth for us in suspending that judgment and of bearing with the suffering that often comes from being treated poorly, that we are... Uh, in this love of Christ made sons and daughters of God. And so whatever comes at us in the course of our life, 
is not greater than that reality. And so before we give way to anger, we want to, to again, take hold of what we are, our identity in Christ and what has been given to us, so precisely so that we don't cast it off quickly for that, again, quick satisfaction of being able to vent our anger and frustration towards the other. Again, it's heroic virtue that we're being called to. Rory writes, when someone trespasses another, is this God's way of showing us the clarity, I'm sorry, us the clarity through peace and hope? Uh, I, I do think that God allows us to experience it in order that our, our virtue might grow, that we might be stretched in our capacity to love. And in this, then, uh, our peace is deepened and we begin to experience a kind of invincible hope. Uh, because there, there's, there's nothing like this kind of anger that destroys relationships, that uh, uh, there's nothing like it that can also destroy our own sense of self-worth and self-identity and make us lose that hope that has been given to us in Christ. So even a step beyond what we're talking about here of not giving way to anger, not uh, uh, treating this relationship of brotherly love lightly, uh, we don't want to treat what God has promised us and given us lightly. We don't want somebody's uh, willingness to treat us poorly uh, steal from us our greater identity. And it can do that. It can, you know, make us feel that we have no worth, uh, especially as Christians. You know, I think when, um, when we love with a radical vulnerability, we are going to be open to being wounded. And uh, I remember reading Benedict Rochelle's work, uh, Spiritual Passages, and uh, he looks at the spiritual life from a developmental psychology, uh, psychological perspective. And so the book has aged very well. It's 30 years old or so. Uh, but he's sort of looking at the, this kind of parallel development uh, in the spiritual and emotional uh, life. And uh, I think one, one of the things that... Uh, can happen to us is when we are, uh, or when we are treated this way again, is that we can lose that sense of hope in God or the sense of his presence or his love for us. And the image he uses for this is St. Francis of Assisi, that there are particular saints that have certain kinds of personalities, characteristics. And with Francis, there was this kind of radical vulnerability in his love that this radical poverty that he had led him to sort of set aside this need to protect his rights or wealth or anything that anyone could take from him because of what he had in Christ. But this made him radically vulnerable then to the rejection of friends and family, to the abuse of others, and even uh, from those in his own community who turned very quickly away from the, the path that he had set forward uh, in terms of the embrace of, of poverty of, of life and poverty of spirit, that there were, were many within the order who wanted to move away from it. And so even during his lifetime, uh, he was in some sense betrayed by his own, uh, those very much like Christ and in that regard. Uh, I think among so many of the saints, his, his life is Christiform. You know, he really manifests Christ in a, a powerful way through his life. But we see it also in this, in this kind of betrayal by those who are closest to him and that should have loved him and trusted him did not. And, uh, and so when we love, getting back to my point, when we love and are vulnerable, sometimes it can make us lose sight of that providence of God and lose sight of the dignity and 
identity that he's given us in that love and allow that to be dictated and colored by how, how others treat us. And if we are really seeking in our life to love in a Christ-like way, uh, and we, without even being conscious of it, we might be making ourselves vulnerable, trying to be responsive and generous and pour ourselves out in love for others and have that be met with, uh, uh, you know, at best benign neglect and at worst, uh, having it take it, take, taken advantage of or rejected altogether. And when that happens, it can be so deeply wounding that it can make us, again, lose sight of the, even of the love of God for us. And I've seen it so often that it can be frightening. Uh, frightening in the sense of showing us the impact of our actions upon others and how if we do not guard our hearts how easily we can tear people down in fact tear down the people in in our life that are the most generous and who do things for us without uh any uh sort of uh calculation you know saint therese said love does not calculate and so those who love in this fashion often are giving themselves simply because they want to give themselves to what is good and what is beautiful and yet living in a fallen world and uh where there is often great sin even among religious uh, when that love is betrayed, especially by those who are religious or by those who are close to us, the wounds can be devastating. And so we can never underestimate the, the, the cost of how it is that we treat people or taking this brotherly love lightly, as uh, the author tells us here in paragraph 10. So I'm, I'm glad that the authors develop this so deeply for us and speak to us of the subtleties of these mo movements, uh, because it, again, it pull, pulls us out of, again, the moralistic or legalistic way of viewing these things to see really what is it uh, in jeopardy here. You know, it's not, uh, you know, we can treat those relationships as having so little meaning that we are willing to cast them off, not realizing that we're also casting off our own stillness, peace, love, and intimacy with God. And that we can be abusing love, because if it is the love of Christ animating that person, that we are abusing love itself. We're abusing Christ in our abuse of the other. Again, gentleness, tenderness, attentiveness, these are often the most neglected uh, things in our relationships and often bring about the deepest, deepest wounds. Any final com comments? Uh, oh, Roy writes, is anger really fear? And wouldn't divine love quell that fear? Well, divine love would, I, I think, if one sees it clearly. Uh, but this is where I think we have to guard and protect uh, the, the heart of others, that they might not come to call that divine love into question because we are treating them so poorly. The more we enter into that divine love, I think the answer to your question would be yes, that even if people did treat us that way, we would not give ourselves over to fear about our future or our well-being, despite the rejection of others. So very, you know, again, this is um, solid food that we are being presented uh, with from the fathers. And so to go back and read it and reread it again and again. Okay, so that brings us to 8.30, and why don't we 
stop there for, for the evening and close as always with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.